Everybody knows that it's now or never. Everybody knows that it's me or you. And everybody knows that you live forever. Oh, when you've done a line or two. Everybody knows the deal is rotten. Old Black Joe's still picking cotton for your ribbons and Now broadcasting from Vancouver, British Columbia, Cocktail Hour with Stuart Parker returns to the series of tubes. Yes, we've been cancelled by CFIS Radio in Prince George, we've been cancelled by CFUR, and then for those paying attention, we were run out of town on a rail by a coalition of pro-fracking greens, local newspaper editor, and uh, racist thugs. So here we are in Vancouver. They've tried to shut us down every which way, but here we are, still broadcasting, still speaking the truth. Uh, Joining me on the line from uh, Northern California, where he resides, is uh, Derek Jensen, um, a uh, eco-political philosopher, among various other things, uh, widely published author of a series of books. Uh, Last episode uh, that uh, we talked, uh, Derek and I went over some of the challenges around the bright green movement, the techno optimists of, that situate themselves as greens. Uh, today, we're gonna be going over some topics we didn't get to last time. So first of all, thanks for coming back. Oh, thanks for having me. Before we get to uh, one of the things that prompted me to set up another interview, I wanted to uh, ask you about the next book of yours that's coming out. Last time, uh, it was Bright Green Lies that had just come out. What do you have on the docket next? Um, Well, I have a book coming out also through Monkfish in about a month, and this is early February right now. So it comes out late February, early March, I think, called Marijuana, a Love Story. You know, I live in Northern California, and marijuana legalization has been a complete disaster for all the family farmers, uh, not just here, but all over. And so the book starts off as an examination of that. And then as my books do, it ends up covering lots of other things. But the, the way it's really been a disaster for family farms is that illegality provided the barrier to economies of scale. And economies of scale as we see again and again, destroy artisans. They destroy small businesses. And it doesn't matter which business we talk about. And we saw this process play out with really the rise of big ag in the 1940s and 50s, excuse me, and earlier. We saw this with the institution of organic standards in the 90s. I was on some panels having to do with discussing this back in the 90s. Um, and honest to goodness, small organic farmers were almost uniformly opposed to the organic standards because the tests were huge and expensive and small farmers could not afford, small farmers who had been honest to goodness organic for decades could not afford the, the, 
the series of tests and the bureaucracy. And so the real organic farmers were driven out of business and that spot was taken by, you know, sort of big ag again. And if we go back in history, well, no, we got, let's go forward in history. And it's the same story with independent bookstores being put out by Barnes and Noble. And then after that, independent bookstores and Barnes and Noble being put out by Amazon. It's the same, same as that. At this point, I believe four economic entities control uh, marijuana in Colorado. Pretty much the same thing's happening in Oregon, Washington, the same thing's happening in California. The cost to start a grow back in the 90s or early aughts, um, the cost to start an outdoor grow would have been a few seeds you got from some guy and borrowing somebody's land you know, asking your friend who's got a backyard, can I grow half a dozen seeds here? And then you can build up from there. So the, the barriers to entry were almost zero. And for an indoor grow, for a decent sized one that you can make a living with, it was about 10,000 bucks, which most people can raise from friends and family. And I mean, it, it was, we can have a discussion about whether the American dream is a good thing, but within the American dream, this was the American dream. You can start a business with nothing. And I'll give a couple more and then I'll, I'll move to the present. Um, if you were a distributor, all you needed was a friend in Chicago, a connection in California who grew good pot and a car that had current license plates and all four turn signals. And so you wouldn't get pulled over. And, and then the friend could front you the pot you drive to Chicago, you drive to Lexington, Kentucky, and then drive back. And that's how you start. And today, back when legalization was really starting in California, I was talking to a lawyer about this. And he said, if you don't have $250,000 cash on hand, don't even bother to start the process. And there are so many people who have either tried to go legal to do the right thing and been driven out of business by all of the costs or, um, or they've just stayed underground. Um, and it's led to all sorts of other problems too. That's the politics of the book in a nutshell. And then also, I, of course, because it's me, I can't stay on topic. And so I discuss evolution of the plant. At first I went into the book thinking it's extraordinary that we develop receptors for a chemical the plant has, cannabinoids. That's the, the plant evolved about 36 million years ago. I thought, wow, that's so weird that, that humans would evolve this that responds to that plant in that way. And then it ends up, I had the whole thing backwards that the endocannabinoid system actually evolved a couple hundred million years ago. And so the, uh, the miracle is not that we evolved something that the plant could, we evolved, no, the miracle is not that we evolved a system receptors for the plant, the miracle is the plant evolved something for which we have receptors. And every, every group, I don't remember the biological term, class maybe, um, every group of animals has cannabinoid receptors except for insects and I think crustaceans. Um, but uh, mammals do, birds do, reptiles do, fish do. Um, and the endocannabinoid system is, is, some people say, the largest system in the body, even bigger than the endocrine system. And 
it's involved in every, like if a woman doesn't have uh, cannabinoid receptors in her uterus, she can't get pregnant. And the, the interesting thing is that, does, that has nothing to do with marijuana. I mean, this, again, this, this goes back 200 million years. Um, it's just that the system is ubiquitous in our body and it's still a miracle that the plant developed these. Anyway, so I explore that. I explore uh, just quirky stories, which if you want, I can tell you some of them. Just quirky stories of this, the, the whole marijuana culture is as crazy as, I don't know, the Wild West with just all sorts of, you know, bizarre stories of people almost burning down their houses or, you know, doing crazy. I mean, honestly, if you mix, mix electricity and pot, you know, something bad is probably going to happen at some point. Yeah, oddly, I really, the first sort of summer employment I had as a teenager was um, my girlfriend's parents were uh, growers and uh, I, you know, was, um, I was hired on for a couple of days during harvest and uh, oddly, the person who hired me also happened to be a microhydro expert and has uh, traveled all over the place and setting up tiny pelt and wheel systems and battery inverter sets and non-electrified swimming pool heating systems and all kinds of crazy stuff. So I was pretty close to that culture. I mean, I led the Green Party of British Columbia in the 90s. Like that's where I was sleeping half the time when I arrived in a town. And British Columbia and Quebec, of course, had a very special relationship. One of the reasons we were such huge producers is that before the indoor revolution, when things massively decentralized, we were major providers in, you know, globally because of our unique land tenure system, that the tree farm license system that's this kind of neo-feudalism BC developed in the late 1940s to prevent some sort of Marxist uprising, you have these essentially these fiefs that are held for 25 years of indescribably huge uh, chunks of the province, like, you know, a tree farm license might be a quarter the size of Switzerland, held by a single company and a single uh, contract. And so there's very little private land in much of rural British Columbia. And so people people assumed far less risk in BC to grow a large number of plants because they were planting these plants in clear cuts that had just been created through industrial logging. And so they're planting these very hardy plants. And that's where we really got BC bud. So I feel like it's not just that there really is a culture and the importance of that marijuana money, not just for supporting family farms, but for the model of how we supported cultural institutions. One of the things I've been writing about is the commercialization of these gatherings, right? Today, they're ticketed music festivals, but in the 1990s, there are these ad hoc gatherings of hundreds of people where people are playing music, but the money that's supporting them is the surplus that, um, that the industry was generating. And so, there's a whole politics of not just connection through these supply chains, but like a politics of really old school barn raising generosity that our, our social movements have lost. Yeah, I completely agree with that. And that's uh, a couple of things. First is one of my introductions. So I, I moved to Northern California, having nothing to do with pot, having to do with redwoods and just, you know, loving them. And 
one of my first introductions to marijuana culture was I was going to do, or I did a benefit for some environmental activists down in Soham, Southern Humboldt. And I didn't think they asked. And I said, yes. And then I show up and I'm standing there before, you know, my, my little talk and person after person comes in with dirt under their fingernails, wearing grubby overalls and popping hundred dollar bills down in the donation tray. And I'm not always the smartest person in the room. So it takes me about five minutes to twig. It's like, oh, I know where they're getting this money. These are farmers and they're not farming wheat because a wheat farmer is not going to have a hundred dollar bill. He can pop into a donation. And this was a huge thing. It, you, this can't be overstated. The environmental movement, the, the Redwood Wars of the 90s were in great measure funded by marijuana money. And I spoke to people when I was doing this book or when me and Tony Savaggio were doing this book, I spoke to people who said, you know, basically every small business in Big Sur was put together by, or Santa Cruz was put together by marijuana money. And also there were, I mean, there's multiple marijuana cultures, some of which are just as bad as industrial agriculture, industrial logging, all that. And they really do, you know, the people with the, uh, the gated compounds with the, with the attack dogs and the AK-47s and the kilogram of heroin, that, that, that exists too. But there also exists these, you know, sort of back to the lander types or people with really good land ethic. And it was not infrequent for them to say, okay, this plant, it was tithing. This plant is going to go for the community radio station. This plant is going to go for the, for breakfast, for the community children. This plant is going to go for, and a lot of these communities were built on this money and they've been having a really hard time because after legalization, because of this. And also in the small town where I live, Crescent city, California, uh, the, the county is maybe I think 27,000 or 25,000 or something and the city is, I don't know, 6,000, 8,000, something like that. And I don't know that it's a, it doesn't seem a coincidence to me that within about six months of legalization, long before COVID, um, a good portion of the restaurants in this community went out of business. And that's either A, because they, there was a lot less uh, disposable income from a lot of the people who've been growing, or B, it was because these things were set up to launder money. In either case, our community now has a lot fewer restaurants than even, again, pre-COVID, we had a lot fewer restaurants six months after legalization. And again, I can't, I can't say for sure because I didn't know any of them, but I know in other communities, you know, I know people who, yeah, the, 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 local, the local restaurant was laundering the pot money and now, now it, had, it went out. So the, a lot of these communities are having a very hard time. Um, and then I want to say one more thing about, about all of this too, which is there's a story a friend told me who uh, he, he told me that he had been driven out of business in Kansas, which you know was never big on pot, but he had a little bit of pot. He grew a little bit. And what he did was he was an independent mycologist. And I mean, can you imagine trying to make a living as an independent mycologist in Kansas? And 
Yeah, Benson. there are researchers, all sorts of people who are right at the edge of academia were also hammered by, uh, by, this, by these developments when we hit legalization in Canada. Because, of course, we also write every jurisdiction legalized at the same time. So there wasn't even the possibility of like things carrying on the same way somewhere in the country. So, yeah, we had financial institutions collapse. Burns Lake went into a depression and its credit union basically went bust over these changes. So it's really striking that, uh, you know, and you see the emptiness of the jobs discourse once again, right? Like nobody who stands up in the public square and talks about jobs is going to be defending these jobs. So that's, that's what, so I got a question for you. I presume the answer is the same as here. Has there been the same sort of centralization of like how many, how many economic institutions now control a significant portion of BC pot industry? Oh, it's, it's hugely centralized. I don't have the kind of stats that you do. And I, it's more the national stats now because a lot of the production has moved into Ontario. So we went through legalization in stages the government made it easier and easier to prescribe marijuana, but the marijuana it could prescribe could only be uh, grown by the government's chosen corporations. Mm. So the state start, the state picked the winners, gave them a monopoly over uh, Health Canada pot, which wait, was wait, the wait. best. You know what a monopoly is called in in when we talk about drugs, usually, usually it's called a cartel. Yes, yes. So they established these cartels. Um, and then once they started the clock ticking on legalization, um, a bunch of the most senior law enforcement officers who were associated with the Liberal Party of Canada put together these consortia. So these ex-police chiefs then expanded this pre-existing cartel system and uh, drove others out of business. Now, interestingly, the valley where I, I cut my teeth on all this um, one woman who is a daughter of one of the groups of dope growers consolidated the land, consolidated the operation, saved the valley. So we actually have like a good story from the Yalakom Valley in BC, where because, because all the moves were so heavily telegraphed and because there was this whole process towards constructing the monopoly that people were calling out 10 years ago, uh, it gave communities like the Yalakom time to go, all right, we actually do have enough capital here. There are enough adjacent operations. If we, if we merge these, we've got a chance. And so I do know that while it's produced more centralization, the BC dope growers have had the good fortune of just being able to see what's coming. And I know that um, there's... That the that BC's uh, BC's growers have not been consolidated like as as has happened in the rest of the country, uh, and the other thing that's happening here is I buy my edibles and all this stuff during this legal regime from a gray market operation. So we also we have because the government has such inflated prices at the marijuana dispensaries. Um, they can be undercut by so much that people who were already sort of part of marijuana culture when it was more marginal are mostly buying through gray market operators again, 
We briefly switched to the main system, saw where it was going. These gray market operators appeared. So I think um, I think we've survived the uh, the hammer coming down a little better than it sounds like folks in California have. Well, the same thing is happening here with the with the gray market, and that's actually what we suggest in the book is that we call legalization prohibition 2.0, um, and it's we we say you know you've been resisting for you resisted prohibition 2.1 or 1.0 and you can also re- resist prohibition 2.0 and i think the gray market in california i don't remember the numbers but i think it's like four times the size of the legal market or the permitted market um and by the way wow. in california you know they had camp and they had these swat groups that would come down in the you know decades ago they had these these paramilitary organizations that would sweep swoop down on growers and they're actually redeveloping those SWAT teams to go after people who don't have permitted grows. So it really is prohibition 2.0. But in any case, yeah, we're, we're, we, we argue, you know, like, and we don't say that, that marijuana is that marijuana growers are blameless. We, we talk about them dewatering salmon streams. We talk about them using rodenticides and we talk about how horrible all that is. And we, we say, you know, fine, if you want to keep growing, you know, you got to, oh, that's another thing is like Humboldt County pays a private corporation to use satellites to try to find grows through, um, through what do you call it? Uh, satellite surveillance and the eye in the sky. And, and we say, if you want to try to keep avoiding those, great. Um, just don't kill the salmon. Don't kill the Humboldt Martins. Don't, you know, put out rodenticides. Don't be nasty. Um, and another problem that's happening is, is that, I mean, so trimming, for example, and I don't know if you also trimmed when you harvested, but I'm not one of those people who really likes trimming. There are people who find it meditative and I just find it tedious, but some people, it's a perfect job for some single mothers, or it was a perfect job because you could take it home. You could trim while your children are asleep. You could trim while they're playing at your feet. You know, if, if you have to stop all of a sudden, cause the kid is getting into the kitty litter, no big deal. But now with the track and trace in California, if you're going to trim legally, you have to go there because they can't let the marijuana out of the building. So no longer can single mothers, I mean, it was absolutely standard for single mothers to be, to be trimming at home. And they would, they would live their entire lives. They would, they would support their children through trimming. And it was a decent living. You can make $250 a pound was the going rate back 15 years ago. Um, and in trimming factories now, uh, it's down to like 50 bucks a pound or maybe a hundred bucks a pound. And also, uh, they just busted this huge ring over in uh, Medford, a couple hours from here, uh, that was using literal slave labor. Um, to, and they, what they did is they had, they had the sort of, they used the veneer of legality to, to break the economies of scale. And then they had these huge warehouses. And the warehouses were filled with, with people from other countries who... Uh, had had their passports held. And so they're basically being held. I'm mean, not basically, they are being held against their will enslaved doing, doing trimming. And that's, that would have been much more difficult to do back when it was illegal, when, you know, somebody walks by and, and we're not, sec- we're not suggesting a return to illegality. 
this actually could have been done pretty simply. And in, in California, at least, what they could have done is they could have simply outlawed any grow larger than an acre or any greenhouse larger than, I mean, no individual needs to grow more than an acre a pot, you know? I mean, to, to support your family. Uh, so easily, in fact, when they, when they were putting the legality through in California, there were big fights going on as to whether the largest grow allowed should be one or 10 acres and discussions on both sides. And then when it actually was put into law, what do you know? They just got rid of the size altogether. And so there's all sorts of, you know, a lot of times when we talk about my work, it's, you know, civilization is killing the planet and it's really sort of larger scale. And for the most part, small scale, you know, sort of, legal tweaks don't make any difference. But honestly, in the case of marijuana legalization, it could have been done and could still with enough pressure be changed to get rid of these cartels and to, to protect the family farmers. But again, this is a problem. This is, this is the story of the, uh, of the Luddites, you know? This is, this is what capitalism does is concentrate power. This is, I, doesn't, I don't care what we're talking about, you know, when I, when I taught at a university, Eastern Washington University in the 90s, one of my students was a small timber mill owner who had been put out of business by Weyerhaeuser. And, you know, it's, it's the same thing. I don't care, you know, name anything, lima bean growing, uh, textiles. Um, it, it doesn't matter. There's small drug stores. You know, it's, this, this is the story of capitalism is the concentration of wealth and the the destruction of the small, what do we call them? I don't want to say entrepreneur, the small, small business owner, the small, the, the family, the family owned thing. One of the things I'm doing right now with my Institute is we're reading eco-political stuff because I've been interacting with people in the present day Green Party in BC and almost none of them are aware that there is a whole genre of writing in which a lot of your writing is situated, for instance, that there actually are these conversations. But if I were to go back when green politics was self-aware, we understood that scale was the center of everything, that changes in scale produce not just quantitative, but qualitative difference, yep. that scale quanta sat at the center. That's why you know, the second green party in the world was called the small party. Why E.F. Schumacher's Small is Beautiful was the, the, uh, the textbook that scale itself is the primary critique, I think, of any sort of responsible eco-political philosophy, how they choose to mount that critique, how far they choose to go. But I don't know what makes something, I don't know how we can even be talking from an eco-political standpoint, if scale doesn't sit at the center. I completely agree with you. You know, one of the ways that I've talked about that having to do with BC in my book Endgame is this person from BC wrote to me to say that she used to see bears. She lives in very rural and she used to see bears constantly. And the problem was that hunters had discovered the bear palm market and the bear bile market in China. And, um, and so, you know, suddenly those became valuable commodities and she never saw any bears anymore. This is 2005 or something because, because they'd all been shot by hunters. And the reason I brought that up then and now is because 
even something as esoteric as bear paws and bear bile cannot withstand global demand. As soon as global demand, I mean, even if they were going to use bear bile and bear paws locally, the demand never would have been enough to affect the bear population. It's, it's when you, the global economy kills everything. Well, no, it, 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 it kills, wrong word, because the global economy actually uh, improves uh, the number of rice grains grown or increases, and it increases the number of marijuana buds grown, but it transforms everything. Many things for bad, and yeah, many, and almost everything for bad. In many ways, um, I remember the uh, the bear thing. There's also a wonderful, um, a wonderful satirical humor book called "The Bear Went Over the Mountain." That's written for the point of view of a bear living in Maine who discovers. Oh, yeah, he discovers the manuscript, decides to impersonate that right. author. I. I love that, but of course, that's his big fear, right? Is that people are after his gallbladder, that he's got to constantly be on the lookout because they're coming for his gallbladder. And I thought that, uh, um, yeah, and in many ways, this actually harkens back to the beginning of global trade because it was only things whose values, whose value radically changed because their symbolic valence changed when they crossed from one culture region into another, right? It made no sense to trade in rice and things like that because the calories it would take to move the rice exceeded the calories stored in the rice. So the really the genesis of the global trading system around 600 BC is um, it's all, well, this is what ivory means in a place where the elephants have already been hunted to extinction. Here are lion pelts for people whose ancestors remember lions. Uh, and uh, so, yeah, I think they're, I think it's funny to, I found the, the bear gallbladder thing. It's like, wow, this is a real blast from the past. This is how, this is how international markets initially became conscious. Right, that Chinese people suddenly wanted sea otter hat, uh, sea otter fur hats instead of beaver fur hats, and off we went. So um, anyway, I wanted to switch gears a little bit because there was a thing we didn't talk about last time because, of course, I was hoping the problem would go away, but it has done the opposite in my own life, and I I wanted to directly address this problem that I know deep, deep green resistance suffers from and that certainly my institute is suffering from now and various other political projects that are now dead because they suffered from it. The last several significant projects where I've tried to intervene in politics in the larger public square, um, the way those projects have failed or been destroyed has been through identitarians who understand themselves to be part of the same movement as I am, but who have these, who believe that if everybody in the movement doesn't hold the same views they hold about identity politics, those people should be destroyed, not just organizationally, but personally. And I know that Deep Green Resistance is one of the first organizations that had to confront this, I think back in 2012. I was just sort of interested in some of your perspectives on the ways in which, and I know this is happening with Deep Green Resistance folks who are protesting a lithium mine, right? They're being evicted from a protest because they don't hold the same views on gender identity. 
What's going on there? Well, we're not actually being evicted. Let's back up a second and sure. Can you can you define identitarian or identity politics? Sure. I mean, identity politics is a sloppy. We'll move forward. Yeah, identity politics is a sloppy term. Uh, Bernie Sanders used it, so it was handy. But of course, everybody has a politics of identity. But I think there's a new politics of identity that has surfaced in the 21st century. And it's primarily based on the idea, well, Amnesty International has a slogan for it. I am who I say I am. The idea that saying you are not who you say you are to someone is the same as murdering them. Well, and first off, that's complete crap. Yeah. And and it it is, if we want to get fancy, it's the fallacy of misplaced concreteness. Mm-hmm. It's uh, it's forgetting what is real. So you don't have to say if you don't want. I'll use a different example if you don't want to say this. But what was the last major medical procedure you had? I'll, I'll tell you myself. I had open heart surgery, okay, right. years ago. And, <clears throat> you know, I want a surgeon who doesn't say they're a surgeon. I want somebody who actually is a surgeon and has done, you know, 3,000 operations. It's... Um, in most areas of our life, we recognize that identity itself is meaningless. How I identify, I mean, if I want somebody to fix my toilet, I don't want somebody who identifies as a plumber. I want a plumber. And there's a difference. And this is true no matter what. I am what I say I am. I mean, let's back up. That's not how definitions work. If you say, I am a plumber, how, how you, okay, we're going to have this discussion. Stuart, you say to me, I'm a plumber. I am a plumber. So how do you know you're a plumber? Right. Just because you say you're a plumber, just go, you're, you're an identitarian plumber. Right. And so well, that you know means because in my mind's eye, when I see my ideal self, I am, you know, fixing these pipes. Right. That's how an identitarian would understand that. Right. And the thing is, that doesn't we were supposed to learn in fifth grade that a definition has two characteristics. One, it must be verifiable slash falsifiable. And two, it must not be tautological. So if I say to you, how do you define a plumber? And you say to me, a plumber is someone who identifies as a plumber. You should fail fifth grade. Literally, we learned that. And we have academics. It horrifies me to see people in the New York Times, which pretends to be all snooty about grammar and like the last bastion of good language, saying that not even understanding what a tautology is. It just... this, this on a linguistic and intellectual level just infuriates me that. And yeah, the linguistic I'm, part I'm, of Did you know that I'm a major league baseball um, hall of famer? Right. How do you know this? Because I identify as, because I've always known in my heart and in my mind that I'm a major league baseball. So next question, please ask me, Derek, did you ever play anything past little league? Right, right. No, so, but that's because I'm oppressed. <laughs> it's just, it's complete nonsense. How is it 
you know, I love, I don't have to agree with it, but Stephen King in one of his books, in, one, in, in his book on writing said, if some, how, how can somebody claim to be a writer? And even for something as, you know, sort of, oh, I'm a writer because I scribble. He says, no, no. The definition of a writer is someone who, who created some piece of fiction or nonfiction, sent this to somebody else. It was published. The publisher sent that person a check and you use the check to pay your power bill. Then you're a writer. And he said, you can disagree with this definition if you want, but the thing is, it's a definition. And so we can have a definition of what makes somebody a, and it doesn't matter what the category is, we can argue about those definitions, but you can't argue about the definition when somebody says, I am this because I say I am. I am a pine tree because I say, I mean, there's this, this person in, in BC now who's saying they're a wolf and like, no, actually you're not. And, and it would be the kind thing to say to them, no, you're actually not a wolf. And it, this is true on, anyway, so I, sorry, I hijacked when you were defining identity politics. I just, I, I went on my rant. Well, it's a very, it's a very helpful rant because it was really at the level, like even before I began seeing human consequences to the identitarian move, the, I really felt like, okay, we are now starting into newspeak that if, if third person pronouns are yours, what it means is that your ego boundaries are completely reconfigured through grammar because everybody's opinion about you is now part of you instead of them. And your opinion about everybody else is now part of them instead of you. And so I thought, well, this is like a massive, this is a massive reordering of the relationship between, you know, the signifier and the signified between the physical world and the language we use to describe it. But why do you think then that um, people involved in environmental struggles, people who see themselves as being involved in those struggles, why do you think that um, identitarian ideas are so seductive, especially seductive to people who situate themselves in the social movements in which you and I find ourselves? So I can't, I have, there's a few directions I wanna take this. One of them is something that baffles me is how identitarianism has taken over radical environmentalism. And the reason that baffles me is because for crying out loud, it was called earth first. Earth first. Earth is a physical being. Earth is, is it was reality first. All social systems secondary. That's what it was founded on. But everything gets overtaken and changed in these ways. And we have to situate this first off in postmodernism and the notion that I mean, one of my, my, my sort of standard mini lecture on postmodernism is that, and what deconstructionism is they started from brilliant ideas and they, uh, they made me question human sentience because they took brilliant questions and answered them in the stupidest possible fashion. And the, the brilliant question is we know that, that, various narratives inform discourse, right? And it can be very different. You can have Christopher Columbus is this wonderful hero 
this explorer, this brave person who opened new worlds. That's one narrative. Another narrative is that uh, Christopher Columbus is this horrible, genocidal, you know, awful person, slaver, rapist, did all sorts of terrible things. That's a narrative. And we have this in our own lives as well. Um, that, you know, one of the jokes I like to tell is that I've never once in my life been a jerk, by which I mean, every time I've objectively been a jerk, I've had it fully rationalized. And everybody can rationalize. We can rationalize, I mean, for crying out loud, <clears throat> you know, Robert J. Lifton wrote about how the Nazis rationalized concentration and death camps. You know, it's like, we can rationalize anything. <clears throat> so brilliant question. With all these narratives, how do we know what's real? stupidest answer in the world the narratives are real and there's no reality underlying them it's like how'd you get there and so that we need to talk about or that that we need to take into account when we uh when we talk about uh, identitarian politics because they are a movement away from material analysis and this is sort of the end game of it, where you can say, I am because I say I am, as opposed to I am because of what's real. And, you know, when, when I first got, you know, when the, when the whole trans thing sort of exploded on DGR, I really thought about this for a long time. And I was like, we can agree that the definition of a homosexual is someone who, who is a male as opposed to lesbian. So a gay man would be a man who we can use whatever verb we want, prefers to have sex with men, is attracted to men, whatever verb we want to put in there. And somebody, it would be possible to have a, a gay male who never has sex. So it's, it's, it's still, so a gay male would be a matter of identification somewhat in that I mean, if, if, a, if a man is having sex with another man, but not having sex with women, that would, that would be a material reality of it. But you can also have, again, you can have um, celibate gay males who could still be gay. And I was like, so what's the difference between that and saying a male saying, I am a woman. And then I realized it's the difference between stating preferences and stating beingness. That I can say, I love potatoes, and I do love potatoes, but I'm pre-diabetic, so I don't eat them anymore. But that doesn't alter the fact that I can state, and I can also state, and this, the, the, the larger point I'm making has nothing to do with homosexuality. I can state, oh, here's a great example. I prefer the movie Saving Private Ryan, which I watched last night, to the movie Dunkirk, which I watched a week ago. And you cannot argue with me on that. You can argue that Dunkirk is a better movie. I would disagree with you, but you cannot argue with my statement that I prefer, you see what I'm getting at? But that's a statement of preference. Now, if I say to you, I am a lobster, that's not a statement of preference. That's a statement of being. And we confuse the difference between statements of preference and statements of being. A male can say, I prefer to wear clothes that are not uh, that don't fit within the normal 
with within what males generally wear. Can't argue with that. And I wouldn't argue with that. And I couldn't care less. But that doesn't change your beingness. So anyway, postmodernism has led us to this point where if you deny physical reality, all you can do is the only way you can win an argument, since you can't rely on facts anymore, all, the only way you can win an argument is by either telling somebody that you are so scared of their argument that they need to shut up because they're doing violence to you, or by otherwise shutting them down. Because once you've taken facts out as your basis, all you have left with is persuasiveness or coercion. And that's part of the problem. Another part of the problem, and this is gonna get me in even more trouble, but I don't care, in for a penny, in for a pound on this stuff, because, because if you disagree with them a tiny bit, you are the devil. And so that's actually really stupid on their part because because if I'm going to disagree with you a tiny bit and you're going to call me the devil, it's like, well, I may as well just tell the truth all along then. So anyway, another part of the problem is that the internet, et cetera, is driving us crazy. And um, I, I saw a, a poll a couple of years ago that youths in the UK, if they were given a choice between access to Wi-Fi and access to sunlight, they chose Wi-Fi. And um, this, we are increasingly confused between what is real and what is not with screen culture, with everything else. And another part of the problem, and there can be a bazillion causes for this, but since the 80, between 1980 and 2010, don't know if they continued it after that, they did a study of college students and they were measuring their empathy and their narcissism. And they did this through asking questions like, if you have two sandwiches for lunch and your friend is sitting there and doesn't have any sandwiches, you're gonna give them one of them. And the empathy dramatically decreased in those 30 years and the narcissism dramatically increased. R.D. Lang had this fabulous thing about Jack and Jill, where if Jack is, is able to forget something, it doesn't do him any good if Jill keeps reminding him of it. And an example might be that Jack is a jerk. I mean, Jack is doing this and he forgets that he's a jerk, but if she keeps reminding him he's being a jerk, then that doesn't do any good. So he can A, say, please stop reminding me, or B, he can get her to try to forget. He can uh, tell her that's not true. That's not how it happened. I never hit you, you know, if he was an abuser. It's like, I never hit you, that's crazy. Um, he can change the modality from, as Lang says, from memory to imagination. Um, he can gaslight her and, this sort of mystification happens all the time. And the point is identitarian movements are based on this sort of gaslighting and mystification because they have no basis in reality. They, they I am what I say I am is, is a complete gaslighting statement. It's like- It also a, would have been read as a symptom of clinical narcissism at a certain point. Absolutely. Right? I mean, that I, class I, of statement would have been pathological. Yeah, I completely agree with you. As soon as you bring that into the discussion, then 
you must be punished because they don't have facts on their side. They can't marshal facts to stop you, which means they have to destroy you. I mean, that, that of course, has taken on greater and greater proportions. You know, and, and of course, there's the demand that others denounce you. So simply having been associated with me now means that um, people face demands from these organized identitarians in BC, right? Where, you know, one person didn't capitulate to their demands and uh, they attempted to have her child, children apprehended by reporting uh, false uh, abuse to the Ministry of Children and Family Development. It's just routine now to, um, you know, of course this person should be fired. Of course you should ask their landlord to evict them. So a great example of this is, um, you know, there's that guy at Penn University, Leah Thomas, who is breaking all the women's swimming records and just smashing the competition. Of course he is because he's a guy and who identifies with me. I, I am a woman because I say I am. And so many of the, the women on the track, on the, on the, the swimming team have said the same thing, which is I don't like it but I have to be anonymous because I'm afraid I won't be able to get a job. Now let's ignore the issue entirely, the, 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 the issue of the man being in the woman's swim team. Let's ignore that entirely and just say, it's horrifying to me that anybody is afraid of expressing their opinion because that opinion might cost them their job in the future. I have never, I have never attempted to get somebody fired or deplatformed for their opinion. And, you know, some of my publishers, some of my former publishers have uh, published some books that I would consider appalling, horrific, vile. Did I ever once say to those publishers, you can't publish those people. Of course not. Of course not. Because if I don't like somebody else's book, what I'm going to do is I'm going to write a better book. Or a great example, a former publisher of mine, PM Press, they organized the West Coast Anarchist Book Fair. And one year, they held it at kink.com, which is where a site where, I mean, the physical site in the building where women are tortured for pornography and they do things to the women there. They talk about it on their website. They do things to the women there that if they weren't done, if they were done to prisoners, if they were done to prisoners of war, they would be war crimes. And they had their, their, their thing there. Did I tell them you can't do that? No. What I said is don't take my books. And then I talk about the fact that I don't like that they did it. That's what I do. I said, don't sell my books there. And also, I don't like that you're doing it. But did I cancel them? No, because that's not how discourse works in a pluralistic society. The way discourse works in a pluralistic society. I mean, you know, I interviewed George Gerbner 25 years ago. One of the, my favorite interviews I ever did. He was the TV violence guy that he would study how much violence happened on TV. He said, everybody misinterpreted his work, by the way. He said, the problem isn't that there's too much violence on TV. Um, the problem is who does what to whom. And 
So he said, if you can, ha- you can have a guy or a cop on there and Bruce Willis being a cop in a movie, he can kill 15 people in the first five minutes. I'm like, oh, okay, that's fine. But if you have a woman who is not a cop who kills 15 people in the first five minutes, it was like, that's outrageous. So he, he, anyway, the real point is that in World War II, he literally fought the Nazis. He was, he, he parachuted into, back into his home country of Hungary or Romania or whatever country it was, and, and literally fought the Nazis there. And his attitude on free speech is, do I think that Nazis should be forced to shut up? No. What I think you do is you, you let them talk and then you show how stupid they are. And then you, you have this, that's what real discourse is supposed to be. Yes, it was, um, whereas, but now there's this discourse suppressing that, which is this doctrine of safety that I, I do think arises from normalizing narcissistic personality architectures. Because if somebody, because there's, there's identity and there's ontology, and if you make them synonymous, then what you're saying is, um, if I say you're not who the, who you say you are, then what I'm saying, what I'm doing is trying to murder the person because who they say they are is the entirety of existence that I'm doing. You're doing the thing that a narcissist doesn't want. You're reflecting an image back to them that isn't the one they want to see. And so they have to smash the mirror. But this doctrine of safety has gone really far and it's been I've had friends who've gone through employee training sessions where the trainers assume that they're training narcissists and they ask questions like, well, if you lived in a world where people had wings and you didn't have wings, you would want to get rid of all the things that people could fly to, wouldn't you? And my friend Evany is going, no, that, that's not the thought that would cross my mind. Uh, never occurred to me. No, it's, it's, it's a very strange thought, but that's the normal thought. And so when my radio show was taken off the air, they had received a complaint. I knew who had complained. It was the same, um, you know, wealthy individual who uh, uh, was upset, remains deeply upset that she was called out for backing an increase in fracking and oil sands activity as the local Green Party candidate. I thought that was a little much to... Um, Anyway, so this produced this vendetta. So a complaint came in. But the radio station, due to the doctrine of safety, um, couldn't tell me who had complained, couldn't tell me what they had complained about, and um, couldn't allow me to speak to anyone who'd complained about me for fear that they would be further damaged, that right there would be another murder attempt by me saying, well, you said this, and that was inconsistent with this. And... I find it strange that so many people, even people who are not like in the front line of the narcissistic bullies who are calling, you know, your boss or calling child protective services, a lot of them will say, well, you know, of course, these people are justified in doing this. I mean, I wouldn't do it because I feel safe, but these people are so unsafe that any word might shatter them. Um, if it's not, if they haven't told you that that's what they want to hear. And I, I'm a little baffled as to the, not just the popularization of identitarianism through movements that we've been associated with historically, but the way that that doctrine of safety can sweep in and replace other ideas. 
what do you think is going on there with people's sort of reframing of the idea of what is safe or what is harmful or what is murderous? I think it's crazy, which of course is ableist to say, but it is crazy. It's objectively crazy to say that me disagreeing with you makes you unsafe. Or that the, the guy who was complaining about DGR at Thacker Pass, he actually said that the reason he wrote it is because he heard somewhere that if he went to Thacker Pass, he would feel unsafe. And it's like, first off, he was actually at Thacker Pass later. Nothing happened. He did not get, nobody assaulted him. Nobody did. But B, okay, name an unsafe place. Uh, a volcano, like a, the middle of a volcano. Okay, my mother always told me that I should not go to amusement park rides at fairgrounds because they're assembled and disassembled every day. And so they aren't safe. So I didn't go to those when I was a kid as an adult either. But the point is that if you really, if you really are unsafe somewhere, usually you, I have never voluntarily or involuntarily gone to a war zone. I would not go to Korea and then walk through the minefields at the DMZ, you know? So you know that they're not really unsafe because, and okay, that's the first thing. The second thing is this conflation. It's just so interesting to me how identitarians conflate. I mean, their identity, their, 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 their ego is so fragile that the opinion of somebody that they will never meet uh, is considered literal violence. That's just extraordinary to me. And I mean, so, okay, Stuart, you and I have never actually met in person, right? Right. And you and I have never had sex, right? Right. Okay, so tell me right now that I am a terrible lover. <laughs> yes, you're a terrible lover. I, you just murdered me. It's like, <laughs> okay. Or you and I have never eaten together, right? So tell me that my manners are terrible when I eat. It means nothing to me because, because there's no basis. I have no relationship with you. And so it's just, it's stunning to me that anybody gives us any currency. I've had so many people over the years, I've gotten thousands of pieces of hate mail, even long before the, the whole identitarian stuff. And I've had people say to me, write to me to say, um, you need to quit writing and get a day job because you're such a terrible writer. It's like, you don't know who I am. I mean, that doesn't, that didn't kill me. It didn't even, affect me at all it's 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 stunning to me that so i'm not answering your question because i don't have the answer on how did this gain so much currency because because it is so absurd last just last night i was interviewing someone about the history of castration 
in patriarchy. And you know, you've got the eunuchs in ancient China, you've got the you've got the, the Ottoman Empire, you've got the um, the Egyptian, you got the Castrati in, in Italy, uh, you have the modern gender identity movement that is removing the, the genitals of and the, the point is that we're having this conversation. And even as we're having the conversation, both of us are kind of stammering and saying, we're going to get in trouble for saying that you shouldn't remove the genitals of children. And then we were saying, that's horrifying that we have to be afraid, afraid is not the right word, but we have to be, that there will be social repercussions for saying that one should not mutilate the genitals of children. It's just, it's, it's nuts to me. And you know, that me, that the, the us even having this conversation will have some social repercussions. It's just completely crazy to me because A, I don't understand whatever happened to discourse. B, I don't understand why there are certain sacred, sacred cows, as it were. I, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, and also I just want to tell the story too. I've told the story before that that when I was in college, Edward Teller came to give a talk at the university where I was attending. Edward Teller, Mr. H-bomb. And this was required attendance for at least the one of the classes I was in. And the next day we had a great discussion with people saying, oh, he's horrible. And other people saying, no, he's great. And the instructors didn't care what our opinion was. All they cared about is that they would say, so somebody says, oh, he's really terrible. They would say, what did he say in the talk that was terrible? All they cared about was teaching us to defend our positions. And these days, I, and I'm not making this up, this really happens. These days there would be afterwards, A, he would not be allowed to talk, but B, there would be rooms full of videos of puppies and kittens with, pl with plush toys for people who have been so traumatized by seeing him. If you're gonna be that traumatized, don't go. You know, I used to go to a lot of rock concerts, just, you know, I would go see anybody if they were coming through live. And, you know, it, if there was somebody I really like, I've, this is gonna make some more people mad. I never really liked punk. And if there was a punk band came through, <laughs> I didn't go. Like, how hard is that? Yeah, it's um, it is extraordinary. I want to, to to rewind a little bit because yeah, there are, there do seem to be all these fairly obvious answers. I found it really striking when I was looking at well, okay, so here's what the head of you know transgender medicine says: is that, like almost none of the children are being transitioned into trans men will have any sexual function, and I thought. Wasn't it only 10 years ago that we were all freaked out about FGM in Sudan? Uh, there was a law. They went to pass a law in, I believe, South Dakota, outlawing FGM in the United States. And the, the transgender lobby uh, defeated that bill. Right. Just in case we're unclear on any of this, because it strikes me that um, there's a strongly gendered valence here, right? That we're not allowed to use the word woman, but we use the word man all the time in, these, in this propaganda, right? Women have been reduced to uterus havers, menstruators, right? All of these objectifying terms, all these different ways of saying cunt, basically, right? And 
And then yet man, nobody's nobody's ever accused of being a prostate haver or something like that. Like those aren't terms that are bandied about. And so it strikes me that, you know, especially now with the rate at which we're, um, right? Because we're generally not destroying the genitals of boys we transition at nearly the rate we do of girls. And so it seems like it's like FGM in Sudan or Imperial Chinese foot binding, right? Where you show the virtue of the family by performing this procedure to make, to get, uh, to destroy the utility of your child's body so that it functions solely as, as a display object. And I, I'm back and forth on this, like the postmodern genealogy, you know, there's a lot to be said for that, that we're just like escaping, you know, into the screen, right? That we're just lifting off from physical reality. But there also seems to be like a gory, bloody, very physical reality as this ideology uh, moves up. And you see particularly these proud uh, top surgery, right? Uh, photos that are being, and I find it really striking because both sides are using the photos as their propaganda, right? Chris Elston, my pal, right? He'll occasionally show these, you know, horrifying photos of these girls who've had their breasts cut off and have these huge scars across their bodies. But the other side also shows the same photos. It's like, look at this great thing we did. And, um, so it seems like, uh, so I guess one of, uh, so how much of this is just garden variety misogyny and how much of this is, you know, sort of an unprecedented thing that we associate with the postmodern turn and the internet and all that? Well, thank you for all these great questions. And <clears throat> I think on one hand, this really is just a, it, it's a backlash against men, against women's gains. You know, destruction of Title Nine. It's it it is a men's rights movement, and there's there's that. On the other hand, I think of something. You know, I mentioned Robert J. Lifton before. I think that, you know, he's. I interviewed him back in the early '90s about his great work, and he's talking about psychic numbing, and he's talking about doubling, and all these ways that people can end up committing atrocities. And then I asked him. So does technology make it, does, te does technology exacerbate it? And he laughed and said, technology exacerbates everything. You know, the, the person I was interviewing last night, she said that, that pornography has made all this worse and the internet has, the internet pornography has made it all worse. And we went last night through some of the numbers on porn use. I don't remember what they are, but they're, they're just absolutely horrifying in terms of, I think it's called porn tube, which is a, which is just a pornography YouTube type thing, um, has uses six times the bandwidth of Hulu. And I don't know if this is, I don't know if that's true, but I don't know if this next one's true, but I think the porn uses more bandwidth altogether than like sports and financial stuff put together, something like that. It's, it's huge, it's huge. And one of the things that Lier Keith often says about the, the trans ideology is that the porn pops them out like tribbles. And there is this huge, I mean, one of the things we have to, to 
a couple of things. One is the person I was interviewing last night, we chatted after the interview was over and she had this line I wish she would have said in the interview. And I said, you have to remember this for the next time I talk to you, which is they're waging war against reality and reality. No, no. First, she said they have to have an enemy and the enemy they've chosen is reality. And reality is not going to go away, which means they have to have a forever war. And that's part of what's happening with this is there is this profound hatred of the real. And I talk about this in a book that I'm writing right now about how Freud had it backwards. It was just a classic Darvo, Darvo, deny, deny, attack, reverse victim and offender. It's a classic abuser's trick. When he said penis envy, it was a Darvo that it's really patriarchy is based on womb envy, based on this notion, not as a notion, it's not based on a notion, that's the point. It's based on the fact that women bring life, that men are reproductively not particularly relevant. And what I mean by that, and what a lot of feminists mean, is if you have 100 women and one man in your community, you can have 100 babies a year. If you have one woman and 100 men, you're going to have one baby a year. So if you have an endangered species, you would much rather that you have 100 females and one male. So I mean, yes, males are necessary to reproduction, but individual male, males are expendable. And sorry, nothing personal for either you or me. Um, but the point is that um, there's this great line that Richard Drennan said to me when I interviewed him 20 years ago, um, which is, if woman can create life and if I can destroy it, who is the stronger? And that for me is the essence of patriarchy. And this is why there's this, this the womb envy is why you can get some astronomer saying, why do we need to go to Mars? Well, and he answered to find out that most important question of all, which is, are we all alone? It's like, you moron, you're asking if we're all alone when we're surrounded by life everywhere? Or scientists get so excited because they have created some enzyme that's a building block of life in a laboratory. It's like, rabbits do this every day. And so there is this tremendous disrespect. I mean, this, this actually was the, the, the womb envy was the, the reason for the creation of the, um, the great chain of being, where at the top, is pure is God who is pure mind at the bottom is soil pure matter coming from the same word as mother and you have um you know angels and then male humans and then female humans and then animals and then plants non-human animals and these down here have no mind and they're below us it's all based on mind is perfect matter is flawed and that fundamental hatred that leads, I mean, think about the, the whole transgender ideology. I am here. My brain is sexed. My mind is sexed. My penis is not. That is a profound disrespect for physical reality. Uh, it's, all of this is coming together in, and it's become worse because technology has reached the stage where we can create. I watched this stupid video just a couple of days ago of artificial intelligence 
aging Jim Morrison? And what would Jim Morrison look like at 75? And, and then they had the Jim Morrison guy, he was smiling and he was looking around and it was kind of creepy. I mean, we moved beyond the um, you know, wax museum stage to, to increasingly realistic simulations, but we can never, we should never, ever, ever, ever forget. And people like you and me have to be holding the torch for this to keep it alive for future people that a simulation is not the thing itself. No, and it's, um, I, I find, I mean, your reference to the, the great chain of being, it, um, one of the things that I, I think merits another look is um, the Albigensian crusade, right? Because the Cathar movement in you know 12th century France, this was their thing. They had stirred too much Plato into their Christianity and they were producing these anorexia death clusters that uh, so many people would get whipped up in the hysteria of Catharism that they would starve themselves to death. And, you know, so, you know, the Roman Catholic Church may not have responded with the correct tool. I'm not sure killing people who hated life particularly helped, but it's interesting the level of panic that it engendered, that there was this sense on the part of the people who saw themselves as having custody of Western civilization, they just invented that concept that century that, oh my goodness, if people take this too far, it's a threat to the whole civilization. We've got to shut it down. And I'm wondering if, but of course that's a period of great abundance, right? That's, it's the scholastic renaissance, it's the medieval warm period, all this stuff is warming up, all these new things are being open to cultivation. I wonder if it's not, if it, the degree to which it's the extinction event itself that's pushing people's eyes away from the real. That yes, our eyes are being pulled towards these pleasant simulacra of ourselves and others, but I'm wondering if it's not the push that we don't, if the physical world is the real, it means that we're collectively failing, that, that we've, we've made terrible mistakes, that um, if that's the real, then, then what does that say about us? I'm sorry if I'm sending mixed messages by both nodding and shaking my head, but I'm nodding in agreement and shaking my head at the horror of it. And I completely agree. I mean, one of the jokes that I tell myself about this is that I have been describing for decades how crazy this culture makes us and how crazy we must be to be destroying the real world and then somehow, every time that I find a new manifestation of this craziness, I'm surprised. And yes, I think that facing this extinction event drives us further and further into denial. And this denial manifests, this denial of physical reality manifests in a myriad of ways of, you know, I think... I, okay, I'm going to say this, but I haven't seen this movie for 15, 20 years, so I might be mis, mis, misrepresenting it. But I sometimes think about that movie, They Shoot Horses, Don't They? Where in the 30s, um, it's, it's the dance contest, the dance marathon. And they just are dancing 
more and more and more frantically and the whole thing becomes more and more and they don't just stop and their lives are crap on the outside and they're doing this tell tell death they're they're dancing themselves to death and it's what i see around us in in the larger culture i mean this and the identitarians will get mad at me for saying this about this but for god's sake i've been saying this I've been saying this culture as a death urge for 25 years, long before the identitarians were a uh, twinkle in the ghost of Michel Foucault's eyes. Well, that um, it's it's not exactly an uplifting note to go out on, but I realize that we plowed through more than an hour, and uh, we should probably wind things down. Uh, I just want to say it's always a pleasure to talk to you. I hope we can do it again in a few months. Oh, I would love that. This was this has been. This has been really great. And, and yes, this has been really great. And I very much appreciate that you remain a beacon of reality bait. Oh, here's the thing to end on. Um, James Howard Kunstler says that what is needed now are, rea- are for us, what is needed now is for us to become reality-based adults. Yeah, pretty simple. I think the, the fact that adult was verbed a couple of years ago indicates the urgency of that. It's oh. another like frightening sign in the grammar that uh, you wait for the wave to crash in. Anyway, thanks again. Enjoy the Northern California spring. Thank you. You enjoy the BC spring. I shall. I can't run no more with that lawless crowd. Killers in high places say their prayers out loud. But they've summoned, they've summoned up a thundercloud. They're gonna hear from me. This has been a broadcast of Cocktail Hour with Stuart Parker. If you're interested in this kind of content, do please consider joining my institute, Los Altos Institute. You can find them on the web at losaltos.ca. If you're interested in more of my opinions on issues of the day, consider becoming a regular reader of stuartparker.ca, the blog where I post a number of my more developed socio-political ideas. Thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you again soon.